You're listening to our new C1 Review, a podcast connecting highlights from three shows. Thanks for joining our conversation. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future. I'm Greg Dalton. There's a revolution happening in the way America produces energy, and business is leading the way. We are currently the biggest part of the problem, but we are an even bigger part of the solution. But real transformation in energy will require consumers to pay the true cost of fossil fuel. In the current rules of business, the biggest polluter will make the biggest profit. What would happen if they actually paid for their environmental degradation? Generating innovation, up next on Climate One. changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. I'm Greg Dalton. These Climate One conversations were recorded in 2013 and 14 before a live audience at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan public forum in San Francisco. The discovery of coal and then oil for heat, electricity, and transportation ushered in the Industrial Revolution. Burning these fossil fuels also altered the planet's climate, threatening the modern civilization they created. Can human ingenuity and technology deliver a new era of renewable and affordable energy? Today on Climate One, we'll look at solutions from carbon capture to financial accounting that hold the promise of a clean and prosperous economy. Let's start with plastic. It's everywhere. California recently banned single-use plastic bags, but many other kinds of plastic will still clog landfills and poison fish. It's hard to read all those tiny numbers on containers to know what is recyclable and what isn't. But some transformative technologies are coming to market to replace petroleum-based plastic. Can they do the job? And are they really any better? Joining me to discuss this is Keith Chrisman, Managing Director for Plastic Markets at the American Chemistry Council and co-chair of the Global Action Committee on Marine Litter. Adam Lowry, co-founder and chief greenskeeper of Method Products, which makes home cleaning supplies. Bridget Luther, president of the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute and former director of the California Department of Conservation. And Molly Morse, CEO of Mango Materials, a startup company developing technology to make biodegradable plastic from industrial waste. Here's our conversation about making plastic from corn, potatoes, just about anything except oil. Keith Crispin, there's a lot of plastic pollution in the oceans. I think a lot of people have seen birds where their stomachs are full of bottle caps, etc. So what is the industry approach to addressing that plastic pollution problem in the, in the oceans? Plastic doesn't belong in the oceans. Our products are, are too valuable to end up there. Our associations across the world have joined together. Over 50 associations from over 30 countries committed to actions to reduce marine debris. We've announced over 140 different projects to help reduce marine debris. And the biggest ones you think will be most effective? We're working with um, Keep America Beautiful on a nationwide campaign called I Want to Be Recycled. 
that raises people's awareness about the ability and, and need to recycle more products and the benefits of doing so. Bridget Luther used to oversee California's conservation recycling program. What do you think of that industry approach to marine plastic pollution? Oh, it's, it's great. It's just a small, you know, there's so many holes in the dike. Where are you going to put your finger? I guess for me, it's not that just the plastics are in the ocean, but that they're toxic. And so the toxic plastics are getting into the fish, and that's getting into our food stream. But wouldn't it be great if we had some innovators who actually invented a plastic that was good for fish? And I know that at Stanford, they've also been looking at a plastic that has a salinity trigger. So then when it gets in the ocean, it would actually disappear. I'd like to see the American Chemistry Council just have this whole innovation thing going on. I think it'd be so fun. Adam Lowry, you're actually harvesting some of the plastic. Tell us about that. We're making a small gray teardrop-shaped bottle, about 12 ounces, that's made 100% from post-consumer material, significant portion of which comes from plastic we've harvested out of the oceans. Not too long ago, people said, well, you could not make a clear, high-quality bottle that looked this good that was made entirely out of post-consumer material. Um, There is a lot of exciting development going on in the bioplastics sphere, but I tend to favor solutions that we can employ right now rather than saying, yeah, the technology's coming. Keith Christman, let's get you on that. Utilizing the plastic that already exists, and is that economic? There is more demand for recycled plastic than there is supply people putting it in the recycling bin. That's the challenge we face. A lot of times we've heard the opposite about recycling, that people recycle their stuff and there isn't the demand for recycled materials, et cetera, and it ends up getting, getting thrown away. Bridget Luther? The demand is getting much higher now because the cost of virgin, the cost of recycles, there's more parity now. There's only 11 states that have what they call the bottle bill program where everybody gets a little incentive to take your bottle back because you paid the nickel at the store and now you want the nickel back. So a lot of plastic is going into landfills in many states around the country. Let's talk about plastic bags. Currently about 100 cities and counties in the state of California have either banned or put a price on plastic bags. Uh, Keith Crispin, is that a good thing to do? Well, I think there's, there's some challenges in that. Those things can be brought back to the grocery store. There's more than 15,000 different locations that people can bring them back to. But what's the consequence for the members of the American Chemistry Council? If those bags come back, do they make less money? You know, what are the, the consequences for the members of, of that closed cycle, that supply stream? Our companies want to increase the recycling rate, and that's why we're working to increase plastic wrap recycling. We've got a program on rigid containers. Bridget Luther? Show of hands, who really misses their old bags? Okay, just for the radio audience, not one person on their hands. There's a lot of energy that goes into making bags. There's just a lot of stuff that we could spend our energy better on than recycling bags that we didn't need in the first place. Adam Lowry? The way we use plastic needs to change along with the infrastructure to recover it and reuse it. Single-use applications where the plastic is only there to keep something pristine until you take it home and either throw it away or recycle it. We should try to move away from that as a use of plastic. Let's talk about bioplastics. Molly Morris, you've done your dissertation, a lot of research on this. A lot of people think that salad fork made out of corn or potato is better, that compostable salad container is more virtuous than one made of big bad oil. Is that really true? It depends on a lot of factors. Maybe they use agricultural lands in their production, for instance. Maybe they use a lot of water. And at the end of the day, the plastic that you make is often different as well. So the common bioplastics that people often um, are familiar with, corn-based plastic, that material needs industrial compost. This plastic that I'm holding in my hand, which is a drink cup made out of a, a bioplastic, PLA in this case, when people use these things at a concert or a place like this and they throw it in the trash, 
People think that this thing is going to biodegrade, and it doesn't. It's going to be there decades or centuries later, just like the red solo cup, because, you know, as, as was said, it needs an industrial compost. And the reality is that the Bay Area is the only place in the country that has industrial composting on any sort of scale. Really what we've got to do is what Molly's doing, which is uh, using a technology that can actually degrade in conditions that aren't, you know, special. The type of biopolymer we're currently producing actually can break down in the ocean. So how could an average consumer keep up with all this stuff? It's so confusing. I mean, Bridget Luther, I mean, this is too complicated for an average citizen. I mean, Molly has a PhD in this, and it's hard for her. So the rest of us are just in trouble, right? When you're thinking about your own use of something, really think before you buy it, what's going to happen to this at the end of use, whether it's a refrigerator, a car, or a plastic cup. Adam Lowry, do you think policy needs to happen? And if so, what kind of policies to move this along toward more of a circular economy where things are reused rather than just chucked in landfill? Yeah, like a lot of people, I'm not generally uh, optimistic about our government's ability to create progressive policy right now, but that shouldn't stop us. I believe that business can and, and is Uh, the primary force for leadership when it comes to creating benefit for society and the environment. There are millions of business opportunities that come from recovering and reusing uh, materials, regardless of any policy that may come down the, the pike. We're talking about plastics and carbon at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our guests are Keith Chrisman from the American Chemistry Council, Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products, Bridget Luther with the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute, and Molly Morris from Mango Materials. Uh, Molly Morris, what companies are creating really cool things, taking waste and making it into an input that'll really kind of change the way products are made? One of the companies that I think is actually pretty interesting is called Harvest Power. Rather than compost as we conventionally think of it, where there's a lot of oxygen present, you can do anaerobic compost where there's no oxygen present. And in those cases, you actually collect the gas that's coming off of that material. And then you can reuse that for electricity, heating. You could make it into more plastics. Keith Crispin, one of the things we've seen happen just in the last four years or so is a dramatic increase in the number of communities that have the ability to recycle non-bottle rigid containers locally. And non-bottle hard plastic, what's an example of that? Yogurt tubs, butter tubs, um, large five-gallon pails. Bridget Luther, does industry obstruct recycling plans and laws? Well, yes, because they have to pay a little bit into the front, and then they get the money back on the back end, so it starts to disrupt their business plans. They don't like it, so yeah, they fight it. Wouldn't it be great if we just had a national bottle bill and somebody just stood up and said, you know, we're all going to recycle, and that's going to be the end of it. They do it in Germany. They do a lot of it in Europe, so it would be really fun. How can consumers be educated? Is there any hope there, Adam Lowry, for some (laughs) simple uh, logos that is all at the brand level, which is where you do it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what we do is we try to use our brand to carry a message. You know, we we call this ocean plastic bottle a message in a bottle. And it's really that we're just trying to raise awareness about think about it before you buy it. Yeah, I think the Sustainable Packaging Coalition's new How to Recycle label will offer a lot in that regard because it will make it easier for consumers to recognize things that are recyclable. An example is the the film that goes around a a case of soda or the film that goes around a, um, a case of paper towels. People don't know that material can be recycled, but this new label We'll, we'll tell them they can bring it back to the stores and put it in the recycling bin at the front. There's two confusing issues in terms of labeling. One is, where did this material come from that's in the packaging? And the other is, what's going to happen to this material when you no longer need it? Let's go to uh, audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. 
something that's very frustrating to me and to my family when I go out of state to visit them. They very much want to recycle, and they do their due diligence collecting the newspaper, collecting cans and bottles, and then they drive them once a month to a recycling center. So I think the people want to recycle. And my question is, I guess I don't understand why is it just 11 states have the infrastructure? Why can't we make a stand here tonight now with Climate One to get all the other states on board and recycle? Bridget Luther? You're going to march to Nevada and Arizona? March to D.C. to start the National Recycling Bill. Uh, Yeah, it's actually, you know, driving your stuff to recycling center is the way it all started in California. So the fact that people are starting to see value in this, but there's lots of businesses in it, too. I mean, there's, you know, we said, you know, it's not a trash truck, it's a resource truck. Financing is key. Yeah, I mean, the facility at Pier 96 here in San Francisco costs 40 million bucks. The, the machine costs 40 million bucks. Now, you know, it's producing product that is now being sold, but financing is key. But it's largely dependent on commodity prices for aluminum, paper, et cetera. When those fluctuate, the economics are favorable or not, and they're so volatile that it's tough to build a business. Let's have our next question in Climate One. In many places around the U.S., a lot of waste still gets burned. And the American Chemistry Council and other industry actors push really hard for an increase in plastics being burned. And um, that's a real problem for the communities who have to live with the toxic pollution from the burning of plastics and other, and other waste. So what's it going to take for us to get to a place where we can actually achieve the types of policy solutions that we need? Keith Crispin, does the industry support burning of plastics? Today, it's not just about burning when it comes to energy recovery. There are new processes to take uh, plastics, put them into a system where it's not burned, but you're able to recapture the fuel from it or recapture the raw materials and make them back into new fuel or new plastics. A company in Oregon is doing that, for example, um, called Agilix. Let's have our last question. Welcome. Is there any, any discussion on, on generating policy that does require end-of-use responsibility on the manufacturing side. So, Bridget Luther, if you could wave your magic wand, what would you want? All the products have to get cradle-cradle certified. (laughs) (laughs) I walked right into that one. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you teed that one up. Look, if they did, they'd design reuse, and they design with materials that won't kill us, and they'll, they'll pay everybody a fair wage, and they'll care about water, and they'll move to renewable energy. And I just want the American Chemistry Council to say, I'm with you, Bridge. So anyway. (laughs) We have been discussing the possibilities of a world without petroleum-based plastics with Keith Christman of the American Chemistry Council. Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products. Bridget Luther, president of the Cradle to Cradle Products Innovation Institute. And Molly Morris, CEO of Mango Materials. You're listening to Climate One. Reducing carbon pollution that is driving wild weather requires using energy more efficiently and finding cleaner sources. Businesses big and small have taken up the challenge. Let's look at some of the innovations in energy technology so far and what lies ahead. With me now are David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, a $10 billion company that operates power plants around the country. Katie Fehrenbacher, who reports on the business of technology for GigaOwn. And Arun Majumdar, professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford and former vice president for energy at Google. Adam Lowry joins us again. 
He's co-founder and chief greenskeeper with Method Products, maker of soaps and other cleaning supplies. David Crane, let's begin with you. A lot of companies seek to be loved by their customers. Apple and Google have this deep, very emotional connection with their customers. Why don't people have the same relationship with energy companies? Where's that disconnect? The nature of the energy system in the United States is a command and control system where for the longest time people have had no choice of where their energy comes from. If it's on the electricity side, historically it's a state-granted monopoly, and if your customers have been given to you and no one has the right to compete, you don't really prioritize giving them what they want. And it's been an article of faith in the American energy industry that whatever we can produce, the American public will consume. So we don't have to stimulate demand, we don't have to care, we just have to produce it. And, you know, the energy industry has not spent a lot of time on becoming beloved with the American consumer. Katie Fehrenbecker, what are some of the cool energy startups that are out there that might be more exciting and might, might change the way that people think about energy, make energy a little more cool and sexy? Cool energy startups. Well, one in particular is Tesla, and Tesla is by far the biggest draw. And then there's internet companies that are moving into the energy space. So Google buying Nest for $3.2 billion. Nest made a sexy thermostat. You know, now Google has these energy assets and, you know, Apple building solar energy um, in North Carolina, largest privately owned solar farm in the U.S., I think it is. So some of these kind of bigger, cooler brands are paying a lot more attention to it. And I think that more will emerge successfully. Arun Majumdar, what are some areas we think where innovation coming out of the university or government could be really exciting and really change the way U.S. powers its economy? How much time do you have? (laughs) I think there's a lot of stuff coming along, and there's a tremendous capacity for the United States to innovate in technology. Things like storage, uh, especially if you're transitioning to renewable sources, which are intermittent. And if you could get storage out there at low cost, the cost is very important, I think that'll be a game-changer, not just for electricity, but for transportation. We're talking about Tesla. If the battery costs come down by a factor of two or three, this is going to be a game-changer. And one thing that is often lost is heat storage. It's much cheaper than electricity storage. If you're trying to combine heat and power, massive opportunities are there as well. So if you were remaking The Graduate in the 60s, rather than plastics, you would say storage to Dustin Hoffman while he's floating in the pool. (laughs) Well, I think my dear friend is going to talk about soap. I'm thinking soap, too. (laughs) Adam Lowry, you use energy. You're trying to rethink and uh, redesign the way corporations use plastic. You've made soap sexy, which is quite a feat uh, to do that. But let's have your take on this sort of as as an innovative disruptor in an industry trying to change it and, and move it in a new direction. There's probably only one industry that moves slower than the soap business, and that's the energy business. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> my business is really dominated by very large international, you know, $90 billion companies that don't move particularly quickly. And as an upstart within this business, we're an innovator and a challenger brand. And what that allows us to do is actually catalyze our competitors to actually follow our lead on a lot of things. And so we do that with the way that we use plastics and materials and take toxic stuff out of cleaning products. But uh, we're now actually building a factory in the city of Chicago that's going to generate its own power. And so we're building utility-scale wind, lots of solar. And so it's been an interesting experience to go through what it takes to actually try to generate your own power. 
Illinois is coal country. Any coal going yeah. into that factory? It'll be grid connected, but we've got nearly a megawatt of capacity, mostly in one utility scale windmill and a bunch of solar that will, for a long time, produce all the power we need. David Crane, let's talk about coal. Coal is, has been the primary source of electricity in the United States. It still is in China, many places. It's the number one climate killer. What's the future of coal? My Dustin Hoffman in the pool moment would be capture carbon. I fundamentally believe that coal should be part of the equation going forward in this country. For full disclosure, for people that don't know our company, we own many coal plants. I want to use coal to make electricity. I just don't want to put carbon in the atmosphere. So last week, we actually broke ground on what will be the largest post-combustion carbon capture project in the world, a billion-dollar project in Texas, which will capture 1.6 million tons of carbon from the exhaust gas from the coal plant. We need post-combustion carbon capture. You cannot solve the problem of climate change without affordable carbon capture because you could actually envision a United States that has no operating coal plants, but you cannot envision a China or an India that does not have operating coal plants. This is basically a sort of a cigarette filter put onto the smokestack of coal plants to suck out the carbon. It's very expensive. Billions of dollars have been thrown at it. Some people think it's pie in the sky and will never happen. Arun Majumdar, how realistic is that? <laughs> Let me explain the severity of the problem. It's actually worse than that. I thought it was the, pretty much a okay. downer. There. <laughs> if you look at the lifetime of a CO2 molecule in the atmosphere, it's a few hundred years. So even if you do all the renewables today and flatten the emission rate, the amount of CO2 still goes up linearly. And that is a huge, huge problem. So this is necessary, CO2 capture, absolutely necessary. And we really need to invest in this R&D to really get that done. So how close are we today to having carbon capture, these filters on coal plants that are economical today that can be deployed to start bending those carbon curves? If the cost of carbon capture is lower than the price of carbon, CO2, then you have a business. Yeah, it all depends yeah. on having a price on carbon, which we don't. David Crane? You have to capture the carbon at an affordable price, and we would say, based on current technology, that's about 40 to $50 a ton. Then you have to figure out what to do with the carbon. And as long as there's no price on carbon, the capitalist system will not solve for something that does not have a price on it. So the second part of the solution is either putting a price on carbon or turning carbon into something that society can use, materialization. Can we embed carbon in building materials and road materials and things like that? Capture it in a way that it just doesn't go in the atmosphere. There was a company called Calera a while ago mm. that put exactly. uh, carbon into cement, carbon into this or that. A lot of those companies are very exciting for a little while, then they go away, you don't hear about them. Kerry Fehrenbacher, these companies have great promise and yet they have trouble panning out in the real world. Right. Well, sometimes it's the technology, right, going from the lab to commercial scale, but sometimes it's the financing also. Um, lots of issues on the road from those little startups to get to commercialization. What's the role of the U.S. government here? Arun Majumdar? What's the role of the government has been a perennial question in Washington, right? <laughs> in terms of research, the R&D, where it is too risky for the private industry to initiate, it is absolutely critical. If I develop a new technology today, for it to be fully scaled in the industry for industrial use, it can take anywhere from 10 to 20 years. And so for that length of time, you know, sometimes the industry is not willing to take the risk. 
And so the government has to play the role of the early stage. David Crane, everyone likes R&D, but the question is whether taxpayers are willing to accept some risks. Solyndra didn't turn out so well, although that overall loan program did pretty well for the government, some would say better than some venture capitalists. Taxpayers don't like to invest in companies that go bust. I don't know how taxpayers feel about it, but certainly the political opposition of the day likes to make a big deal of it. That solyndrophobia. I mean, the minute the, the, Solyndra, the minute the yeah. Department of Energy started getting beat overhead over what happened with Solyndra, it froze, and you know it became very painful to deal with the DOE with the projects. Having said that, our carbon capture project that I just mentioned—it's a billion-dollar project, but it's enabled very significantly by a $170 million grant from the DOE. I feel like it's gotten a little bit better too in the last year. The DOE. Well, just the entire politicization of the green really? issue. Really. So I feel like the ghost of Slindra has gone away. Hmm. We're talking about energy, empowering the American economy today at Climate One. Our guests are David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, Katie Fehrenbacher, reporter with GigaOM, Adam Lowry with Method Products, and Arun Majumdar, professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. And isn't it true that the United States put a few billion dollars, say, into the solar sector, and China put in $50 billion, right? So they put in 10x to that, and they've essentially cornered the global market now on, on solar panels. So, Majumdar, what's the risk of the U.S. losing out to some of these state-run economies? You know, if you look at the Chinese investments, yes, they've invested a lot of money. They have not been always the most thoughtful ones. The government has a role to play in the late stage. If you are building a first-of-a-kind carbon capture plant, the government has to play some role in it. But at some point, the market has to play a role so that you know, there are market forces at play. Adam Lowry, uh, innovation, does it always require government subsidy? I don't know if you've received any government subsidies or not. To try <laughs> not to, uh, any. So yeah. it's not always required, but it probably helps. Yeah, certainly I agree with the core need for research and the role that government can play there. I think that there are also ways of innovating from the other side. Certainly with our business, we're trying to do that. And one of the reasons that I became an entrepreneur is because I wanted to get all the people in society that aren't particularly informed or concerned about climate change in the movement somehow. And so we chose to really try to make a product that's very mundane, a bathroom cleaner, a bottle of dish soap, make it, as you said, a little bit sexier than it had been, but really build from all of the elements of its sustainability, whether that's the energy that was used to produce it or the chemistry that's in it or what the bottle's made out of, to get more and more people that are on the spectrum between don't care at all and mildly concerned about climate change, just in, in their daily lives to start to integrate this. David Crane, speaking about the role of businesses and business leaders, you wrote a letter to shareholders that was quite emotional, quite different than most CEO letters. Tell us why you wrote it. I mean, I've been a CEO for 11 years, and there's this formula that goes into the shareholder letter that's part of the SEC filing, which is... Probably an algorithm that writes those letters. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Every year it sounds the same. And so we had the idea that, you know, we should talk about where NRG stands, and it, it's time to take a stand right now on this issue. You know, the science is, is beyond dispute. The excuse that we don't have the technology is just not true anymore. Uh, we have the technology. So I wrote the letter, and I, uh, the employees read the letter more than your shareholders. I was really trying to motivate the 10,500 people that work at NRG is that, yeah, you know, we're trying to make money all that, but we're, we're basically trying to 
you know, save the world. I mean, what does energy stand for? Yeah, we want to save the world. Versus be part of the problem, which <laughs> yeah. coal companies yeah, well, bring. That's the thing. I mean, if you ask me the electricity industry in the context of climate change, we are currently the biggest part of the problem, but we are an even bigger part of the solution. Because if electricity can make itself zero carbon, then we can solve the transportation industry and we can solve the industry industry. And then all we need is someone doing agriculture and deforestation and we're done. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, simple as that. Yeah, it's a simple formula. What's been the response? Any other CEOs at the golf club say, yeah, David shouldn't have read that, you know? I've been surprised at the number of CEOs that have read it and say, your letter really resonated with me because I've never read the annual shareholder letter of any other company. (laughs) (laughs) Do investors care? Wall Street just wants compounded quarterly earnings. You're right to a certain degree, but as a company that, you know, makes a lot of electricity and emits a lot of carbon associated with this, investors are concerned about the risk, but not from some sort of, you know, social virtue point of view, but from a, well, you know, you're going to get shut down or you're going to have to spend so much money on on the back end of your coal plant. So investors do see it in dollar and cents terms, but they see that the societal trend is towards going green. So you better get on the bus or the bus is going to run you over. Two very brief examples. We use some secondary biodiesel to do shipping of our products, which is actually the largest part of our carbon footprint. And that's actually cheaper than regular diesel. That was an investment we had to make, but we now save money on every gallon of diesel. And so that's real easy, right? You save money, sustainable, you know, go for it. But another interesting example is we make all of our bottles out of 100% post-consumer material instead of virgin plastic. And in 2011, when we saw a real big spike in oil prices, recycled plastic doesn't have nearly the carbon footprint of a virgin plastic. And the cost curves almost crossed. And so we were able to demonstrate to our investors, hey, we are insulating ourselves against commodity cost risk. So you just have to speak their language. Arun Madhumdar. This is a transgenerational issue. And it's really important to bring the younger generation into this mix. And the good news is that every university has an energy club or a sustainability club, whatever they call it. And that's one of the most positive things that has happened around this country Do they feel betrayed by the baby boom generation, which was going to change the world and ended up kind of trashing the planet? I don't think they really care. What they really care about is, can we solve this problem? I think they care about what's going to be in the future. And they realize it's a global issue. It's not just the United States issue. And I think you can get kids really excited about the fact that they can leave a legacy by doing something not just for the United States, but for the rest of the world. Katie Fehrenbacher. Even in the startup entrepreneur Silicon Valley world, you see a lot of the youngest entrepreneurs really excited about trying to change the energy space. It's an extremely difficult area to launch a company and a startup in, but it's some of these just kind of fresh out of school kids who are really excited about you know, if they're in the science space, trying to build new types of batteries, or you know, if they're in the internet, social media space, trying to build more sustainable brands. I completely agree. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome. Thank you. And this is for David. How difficult was your coming out journey like? (laughs) And what can we do as a society to help other CEOs to come out of the closet too? (laughs) You didn't know you were going to come out in San Francisco, did you? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No. But sticking with the gay theme for a second... What's happened in the gay marriage movement over the last 10 years is what we need to have happen in climate change. 
we got the 15% of the population. There's 15% of the population that will never get the laggards. We have to win the silent majority. And if I could figure out how in 10 years' time the gay marriage movement caught you know, middle America, then we would win this climate change thing. To your question, it's no personal courage at all from my perspective. I mean, I'm an American Fortune 250 CEO. I'm paid a lot of money. The worst thing that could happen to me is that they fire me, and if they fired me, they would have to pay me even more money. <laughs> so, so, so there's no personal courage in this at all on my part. I'm just calling them like I see them. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. If you could tomorrow wave a wand, what three things would you do to make the true cost of fossil-based fuels reflected in the market? Or what would you do to better incentivize renewables and distributed generation? David Crane. The status quo energy industry and the benefits they get, mainly at the federal level, you will never shake those. I mean, they exist to protect those. So I, I think it's a futile effort. We just have to beat the cost as it is and, and get the cost of renewables down. And, you know, right now, a solar panel, the installed cost is roughly around 350 a watt. If we get the all-in cost of distributed solar down to the 225 to 250, it will beat the retail price of electricity in something like 47 states. And at that point, you know, we win. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, audience question. How do we make conservation of water or energy or food sexy for the American public? Adam Lauer, you're our sexy guy up here. Wow. So, <laughs> uh, so we've got to bring sexy back, is yeah, what you're saying. You know, That's right. We, it's ratings week here yeah. at Climate One. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> we've got to make it appealing for reasons other than just its quality as a, as a sustainable solution. And, and Method's done that in the soap business, but you can do it anywhere. You know, for issues of water, the human connection with nature and how that adds quality to our lives and things like that. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. When will U.S. get a price on carbon and in what form? Arun Majumdar. It's a political issue. All politics is local. We really need to get the local folks energized about this. And I think that's when you get a change. If you ask me when, uh, I can't answer that question. Sorry. Been talking about creative solutions to the fossil fuel challenge with David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, Kitty Fehrenbacher, a reporter with GigaOM, Arun Majumdar, professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford, and Adam Lowry, co-founder of Method Products. You're listening to Climate One. Carbon pollution that is driving wild weather requires using energy more efficiently and finding cleaner sources. Businesses big and small have taken up the challenge. Let's look at some of the innovations in energy technology so far and what lies ahead. With me now are David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, a $10 billion company that operates power plants around the country. Katie Fehrenbacher, who reports on the business of technology for GigaOM, and Arun Majumdar, professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford and former vice president for energy at Google. Adam Lowry joins us again. He's co-founder and chief greenskeeper with Method Products, maker of soaps and other cleaning supplies. David Crane, let's begin with you. A lot of companies seek to be loved by their customers. Apple and Google have this deep, very emotional connection with their customers. Why don't people have the same relationship with energy companies? 
Where's that disconnect? The nature of the energy system in the United States is a command and control system where for the longest time, people have had no choice of where their energy comes from. If it's on the electricity side, historically, it's a state-granted monopoly. And if your customers have been given to you and no one has the right to compete, you don't really prioritize giving them what they want. And it's been an article of faith in the American energy industry that whatever we can produce, the American public will consume. So we don't have to stimulate demand. We don't have to care. We just have to produce it. And, you know, the energy industry has not spent a lot of time on becoming beloved with the American consumer. Katie Fehrenbecker, what are some of the cool energy startups that are out there that might be more exciting and might, might change the way that people think about energy, make energy a little more cool and sexy? Cool energy startups. Well, one in particular is Tesla, and Tesla is by far the biggest draw. And then there's internet companies that are moving into the energy space. So Google buying Nest for $3.2 billion. Nest made a sexy thermostat. You know, now Google has these energy assets and, you know, Apple building solar energy um, in North Carolina, largest privately owned solar farm in the U.S., I think it is. So some of these kind of bigger, cooler brands are paying a lot more attention to it. And I think that more will emerge successfully. Arun Majumdar, what are some areas we think where innovation coming out of the university or government could be really exciting and really change the way U.S. powers its economy? How much time do you have? <laughs> I think there's a lot of stuff coming along, and there's a tremendous capacity for the United States to innovate in technology. Things like storage, uh, especially if you're transitioning to renewable sources, which are intermittent. And if you could get storage out there at low cost, the cost is very important, I think that'll be a game changer. Not just for electricity, but for transportation. We were talking about Tesla. If the battery costs come down by a factor of two or three, this is going to be a game changer. And one thing that is often lost is heat storage. It's much cheaper than electricity storage. If you're trying to do combined heat and power, massive opportunities are there as well. So if you were remaking The Graduate in the 60s, rather than plastics, you would say storage to Dustin Hoffman I'd... while he's floating in the pool. <laughs> well, I think my dear friend soap. is going to I talk about soap. Soap. Yeah. Yeah. I'm soap. thinking soap, too. Yeah. <laughs> Adam Lowry, you use energy. You're trying to rethink and uh, redesign the way corporations use plastic. You've made soap sexy, which is quite a feat uh, to do that. Thank but you. let's have your take on this sort of as, as an innovative disruptor in an industry trying to change it and, and move it in a new direction. There's probably only one industry that moves slower than the soap business, and that's the energy business. Oh. <laughs> so, <laughs> my business is really dominated by very large international, you know, $90 billion companies that don't move particularly quickly. And as an upstart within this business, we're an innovator and a challenger brand. And what that allows us to do is actually catalyze our competitors to actually follow our lead on a lot of things. And so we do that with the way that we use plastics and materials and take toxic stuff out of cleaning products. But uh, we're now actually building a factory in the city of Chicago that's going to generate its own power. And so we're building utility-scale wind, lots of solar. And so it's been an interesting experience to go through what it takes to actually try to generate your own power. Illinois is coal country. Any coal going yeah. into that factory? It'll be grid connected, but we've got nearly a megawatt of capacity, mostly in one utility scale windmill and a bunch of solar that will, for a long time, produce all the power we need.
David Crane, let's talk about coal. Coal is, has been the primary source of electricity in the United States. It still is in China, many places. It's the number one climate killer. What's the future of coal? My Dustin Hoffman in the pool moment would be capture carbon. I fundamentally believe that coal should be part of the equation going forward in this country. For full disclosure, for people that don't know our company, we own many coal plants. I want to use coal to make electricity. I just don't want to put carbon in the atmosphere. So last week, we actually broke ground on what will be the largest post-combustion carbon capture project in the world, a billion-dollar project in Texas, which will capture 1.6 million tons of carbon from the exhaust gas from the coal plant. We need post-combustion carbon capture. You cannot solve the problem of climate change without affordable carbon capture because you could actually envision a United States that has no operating coal plants, but you cannot envision a China or an India that does not have operating coal plants. This is basically a sort of a cigarette filter put onto the smokestack of coal plants to suck out the carbon. It's very expensive. Billions of dollars have been thrown at it. Some people think it's pie in the sky and will never happen. Arun Majumdar, how realistic is that? <laughs> Let me explain the severity of the problem. It's actually worse than that. I thought it was the, pretty much a okay. downer. Though. <laughs> if you look at the lifetime of a CO2 molecule in the atmosphere, it's a few hundred years. So even if you do all the renewables today and flatten the emission rate, the amount of CO2 still goes up linearly. And that is a huge, huge problem. So this is necessary, CO2 capture, absolutely necessary. And we really need to invest in this R&D to really get that done. So how close are we today to having carbon capture, these filters on coal plants that are economical today that can be deployed to start bending those carbon curves? If the cost of carbon capture is lower than the price of carbon, CO2, then you have a business. Yeah, it all depends yeah. on having a price on carbon, which we don't. David Crane? You have to capture the carbon at an affordable price, and we would say, based on current technology, that's about 40 to $50 a ton. Then you have to figure out what to do with the carbon. And as long as there's no price on carbon, the capitalist system will not solve for something that does not have a price on it. So the second part of the solution is either putting a price on carbon or turning carbon into something that society can use, materialization. Can we embed carbon in building materials and road materials and things like that? Capture it in a way that it just doesn't go in the atmosphere. There was a company called Calera a while ago mm. that put exactly. uh, carbon into cement, carbon into this or that. A lot of those companies are very exciting for a little while, then they go away, you don't hear about them. Kerry Fehrenbacher, these companies have great promise and yet they have trouble panning out in the real world. Right. Well, sometimes it's the technology, right, going from the lab to commercial scale, but sometimes it's the financing also. Um, lots of issues on the road from those little startups to get to commercialization. What's the role of the U.S. government here? Arun Majumdar? What's the role of the government has been a perennial question in Washington, right? <laughs> in terms of research, the R&D, where it is too risky for the private industry to initiate, it is absolutely critical. If I develop a new technology today, for it to be fully scaled in the industry for industrial use, it can take anywhere from 10 to 20 years. And so for that length of time, you know, sometimes the industry is not willing to take the risk. And so the government has to play the role of the early stage. David Crane, everyone likes R&D, but the question is whether taxpayers are willing to accept some risks 
Solyndra didn't turn out so well, although that overall loan program did pretty well for the government, some would say better than some venture capitalists. Taxpayers don't like to invest in companies that go bust. I don't know how taxpayers feel about it, but certainly the political opposition of the day likes to make a big deal of it. That solyndrophobia. I mean, the minute the, 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 the minute the yeah. Department of Energy started getting beat overhead over what happened with Solyndra, it froze, and you know it became very painful to deal with the DOE with the projects. Having said that, our carbon capture project that I just mentioned—it's a billion-dollar project, but it's enabled very significantly by a $170 million grant from the DOE. I feel like it's gotten a little bit better too in the last year. The DOE. Well, just the entire politicization of the green really? issue. So I feel like the ghost of Slyndra has gone away. Hmm. We're talking about energy empowering the American economy today at Climate One. Our guests are David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, Katie Fehrenbacher, reporter with GigaOM, Adam Lowry with Method Products, and Arun Majumdar, professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. And isn't it true that the United States put a few billion dollars, say, into the solar sector, and China put in $50 billion, right? So they put in 10x to that, and they've essentially cornered the global market now on, on solar panels. So, Majumdar, what's the risk of the U.S. losing out to some of these state-run economies? You know, if you look at the Chinese investments, yes, they've invested a lot of money. They have not been always the most thoughtful ones. The government has a role to play in the late stage. If you are building a first-of-a-kind carbon capture plant, the government has to play some role in it. But at some point, the market has to play a role so that you know, there are market forces at play. Adam Lowry, uh, innovation, does it always require government subsidy? I don't know if you've received any government subsidies or not. To try <laughs> not to, uh, any. So yeah. it's not always required, but it probably helps. Yeah, certainly I agree with the core need for research and the role that government can play there. I think that there are also ways of innovating from the other side. Certainly with our business, we're trying to do that. And one of the reasons that I became an entrepreneur is because I wanted to get all the people in society that aren't particularly informed or concerned about climate change in the movement somehow. And so we chose to really try to make a product that's very mundane, a bathroom cleaner, or a bottle of dish soap, make it, as you said, a little bit sexier than it had been, but really build from all of the elements of its sustainability, whether that's the energy that was used to produce it or the chemistry that's in it or what the bottle's made out of, to get more and more people that are on the spectrum between don't care at all and mildly concerned about climate change, just in, in their daily lives to start to integrate this. David Crane, speaking about the role of businesses and business leaders, you wrote a letter to shareholders that was quite emotional, quite different than most CEO letters. Tell us why you wrote it. I mean, I've been a CEO for 11 years, and there's this formula that goes into the shareholder letter that's part of the SEC filing, which is... Probably an algorithm that writes those letters. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Every year it sounds the same. And so we had the idea that, you know, we should talk about where NRG stands, and it, it's time to take a stand right now on this issue. You know, the science is, is beyond dispute. The excuse that we don't have the technology is just not true anymore. Uh, we have the technology. So I wrote the letter, and I, uh, the employees read the letter more than your shareholders. I was really trying to motivate the 10,500 people that work at NRG is that, yeah, you know, we're trying to make money all that, but we're, we're basically trying to 
you know, save the world. I mean, what does energy stand for? Yeah, we want to save the world. Versus be part of the problem, which <laughs> yeah. coal companies yeah, well, bring. That's the thing. I mean, if you ask me the electricity industry in the context of climate change, we are currently the biggest part of the problem, but we are an even bigger part of the solution. Because if electricity can make itself zero carbon, then we can solve the transportation industry and we can solve the industry industry. And then all we need is someone doing agriculture and deforestation and we're done. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, simple as that. Yeah, it's a simple formula. What's been the response? Any other CEOs at the golf club say, yeah, David shouldn't have read that, you know? I've been surprised at the number of CEOs that have read it and say, your letter really resonated with me because I've never read the annual shareholder letter of any other company. (laughs) (laughs) Do investors care? Wall Street just wants compounded quarterly earnings. You're right to a certain degree, but as a company that, you know, makes a lot of electricity and emits a lot of carbon associated with this, investors are concerned about the risk, but not from some sort of, you know, social virtue point of view, but from a, well, you know, you're going to get shut down or you're going to have to spend so much money on on the back end of your coal plant. So investors do see it in dollar and cents terms, but they see that the societal trend is towards going green. So you better get on the bus or the bus is going to run you over. Two very brief examples. We use some secondary biodiesel to do shipping of our products, which is actually the largest part of our carbon footprint. And that's actually cheaper than regular diesel. That was an investment we had to make, but we now save money on every gallon of diesel. And so that's real easy, right? You save money, sustainable, you know, go for it. But another interesting example is we make all of our bottles out of 100% post-consumer material instead of virgin plastic. And in 2011, when we saw a real big spike in oil prices, recycled plastic doesn't have nearly the carbon footprint of a virgin plastic. And the cost curves almost crossed. And so we were able to demonstrate to our investors, hey, we are insulating ourselves against commodity cost risk. So you just have to speak their language. Arun Rajamdar. This is a transgenerational issue. And it's really important to bring the younger generation into this mix. And the good news is that every university has an energy club or a sustainability club, whatever they call it. And that's one of the most positive things that has happened around this country Do they feel betrayed by the baby boom generation, which was going to change the world and ended up kind of trashing the planet? I don't think they really care. What they really care about is, can we solve this problem? I think they care about what's going to be in the future. And they realize it's a global issue. It's not just the United States issue. And I think you can get kids really excited about the fact that they can leave a legacy by doing something not just for the United States, but for the rest of the world. Katie Fehrenbacher. Even in the startup entrepreneur Silicon Valley world, you see a lot of the youngest entrepreneurs really excited about trying to change the energy space. It's an extremely difficult area to launch a company and a startup in, but it's some of these just kind of fresh out of school kids who are really excited about, you know, if they're in the science space, trying to build new types of batteries, or, you know, if they're in the internet, social media space, trying to build more sustainable brands. I completely agree. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome. Thank you. And this is for David. How difficult was your coming out journey like? (laughs) And what can we do as a society to help other CEOs to come out of the closet too? (laughs) You didn't know you were going to come out in San Francisco, did you? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) No. But sticking with the gay theme for a second... What's happened in the gay marriage movement over the last 10 years is what we need to have happen in climate change. 
we got the 15% of the population. There's 15% of the population that will never get the laggards. We have to win the silent majority. And if I could figure out how in 10 years' time the gay marriage movement caught you know, middle America, then we would win this climate change thing. To your question, it's no personal courage at all from my perspective. I mean, I'm an American Fortune 250 CEO. I'm paid a lot of money. The worst thing that could happen to me is that they fire me, and if they fired me, they would have to pay me even more money. <laughs> so, so, so there's no personal courage in this at all on my part. I'm just calling them like I see them. That's our next audience question. Welcome to Climate One. If you could tomorrow wave a wand, what three things would you do to make the true cost of fossil-based fuels reflected in the market? Or what would you do to better incentivize renewables and distributed generation? David Crane. The status quo energy industry and the benefits they get, mainly at the federal level, you will never shake those. I mean, they exist to protect those. So I, I think it's a futile effort. We just have to beat the cost as it is and, and get the cost of renewables down. And, you know, right now, a solar panel, the installed cost is roughly around 350 a watt. If we get the all-in cost of distributed solar down to the 225 to 250, it will beat the retail price of electricity in something like 47 states. And at that point, you know, we win. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, audience question. How do we make conservation of water or energy or food sexy for the American public? Adam Lauer, you're our sexy guy up here. Wow. So, <laughs> uh, so we've got to bring sexy back, is yeah, what you're saying. You know, That's right. We, it's ratings week here yeah. at Climate One. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> we've got to make it appealing for reasons other than just its quality as a, as a sustainable solution. And, and Method's done that in the soap business, but you can do it anywhere. You know, for issues of water, the human connection with nature and how that adds quality to our lives and things like that. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. When will U.S. get a price on carbon and in what form? Arun Majumdar. It's a political issue. All politics is local. We really need to get the local folks energized about this. And I think that's when you get a change. If you ask me when, uh, I can't answer that question. Sorry. Been talking about creative solutions to the fossil fuel challenge with David Crane, CEO of NRG Energy, Kitty Fehrenbacher, a reporter with GigaOM, Arun Majumdar, professor of mechanical engineering at Stanford, and Adam Lowry, co founder of Method Products. You're listening to Climate One.